Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. This week, we talk with Matthew Nisbet, a professor of communication, public policy, and urban affairs at Northeastern University, and editor-in-chief of the journal Environmental Communication, among many other roles and affiliations. We'll be discussing some of Matt's latest research around effective climate communications and about the role of philanthropy in moving forward climate strategy and policy. Stay with us. Matt, uh, it's great to have you. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's uh, great to join you and uh, talk about some really important topics. Well, I wanted to start today's podcast by noting that your undergraduate degree is in government and your advanced degrees are in communications. So what made you decide to focus a substantial part of your research on climate change? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, since I was an undergrad, I've always been interested in the politics of environmental debates and science debates more generally. My, my minor was in environmental studies at Dartmouth College. And uh, just after college, I worked for about nine months as an organizer for the U.S. Public Interest Research Group. And I worked on, this was in 1996, I worked on a campaign finance reform initiative, ballot initiative in California. But after about nine months, I discovered that uh, organizing was not really the life for me. So I, I moved back to Buffalo where I grew up and I worked for a think tank there that's affiliated with the University of Buffalo called the Center for Inquiry, which works on issues related to science and religion and public understanding of science. And it was there that I kind of crystallized my decision to uh, go to graduate school and study the intersection of science, politics, and the media and communication. And uh, so I went on to Cornell University, which has a the top doctoral program in that area. And that was in 1999. So I was in graduate school from 99 to 2003. And, and that was really where we, we started to see issues like climate change, stem cell research, food biotechnology, kind of move from being just scientific topics to being national political debates. So I started to apply what we understand from political communication and public opinion research that we learned in studying issues like abortion or tax policy or elections to then looking at the dynamics of these really complex science issues. For the last uh, 10 years, I've pretty much fully exclusively focused on climate change as a a scientific debate to, to study and to evaluate. Yeah, super interesting. And I will note that there are now entire fields of study dedicated to how to better communicate about climate change with the public and with policymakers. So maybe I can sort of start the substantive part of our conversation by asking, why is communicating about climate change so tricky? Why have people felt uh, the need to really invest in better strategies for, for communicating about it? Yeah, so uh, over the last 10 years, you're right, there's been a huge explosion in uh, social science research on climate change communication, which includes looking at how the media covers the issue, how the public and other decision makers understand it, and what influences their opinions and their judgments and their behavior, to then strategies of public engagement and persuasion or campaigns and what impact they might have. And so traditionally, uh, well, historically, really, we've always studied climate change through the lens of either environmental science or economics. And environmental science tells us what might be the, the drivers of climate change as a physical problem and gives us projections on what might be the risks or the impacts and starts to tell us, gives, give us a roadmap for what we need to do to 
the lower emissions and economics is always try to look at the cost benefits of action and proposals related to things like taxes and, and other things. So, but what's been missing always has been the human behavioral societal uh, element. You know, so much of climate change is, is what policy science scholars call a super wicked problem. You know, science and economics can only tell us a single dimension of what a super wicked problem might be about and how to address it, because so much of it is really the social dimension from the role that uh, advocacy groups play to uh, an area that I've studied, philanthropies, to um, the influence of communication and media on how we understand this issue that is really difficult for us to comprehend and understand because science often talks about it as in terms of global terms. We talk about it in terms of temperature targets and, and global emissions, which for most people is very much in the abstract. And we, we talk about the issue on a timetable of you know 50 to 100 years. We talk about what we need to do by 2030, which even for most people, 12 years out is difficult to think about, or 2050 or 2100. So psychologically, like with anything else, whether it's thinking about your cholesterol levels or your weight or how much exercise you're getting, we tend to discount a risk that might be far off in the future. And that's one element that makes climate change so difficult to tackle as a societal problem is just simply the discounting of a far off event. But we also discount it as something that's happening to other people or some, some other place in the world and is not currently affecting us or, uh, or a severe threat to ourselves and our families. You know, we see news of natural disasters that might be linked to climate change, but unless it's affecting us directly, you know, we will tend to discount it as affecting people of some other place in the country or somewhere else uh, in the world. And then on top of all that, all those sort of normal psychological tendencies, climate change has become this embittered, polarized political debate where people can easily view the issue through the lens of their political identity, particularly their partisanship and their, and their ideology. And in today's politics in the United States, partisanship has become the strongest predictor of opinion on most political issues that are being debated. So uh, for example, the Pew Research Center will often ask people in several surveys uh, their positions on 10 different policy questions from gun control to taxes to abortion to environmental protection versus economic growth. And what's happened over the last 20, 30 years as Republicans have moved very far to the right and Democrats have moved more to the left, but not to the same degree, it's not a symmetrical uh, shift. Democrats and Republicans among the public have also move to the right, to the left. So there's this alignment between partisanship and ideology so that uh, most Republicans, strong identifying Republicans, are incredibly consistent in thinking about uh, social and policy and environmental issues in a consistently conservative direction. And most Democrats increasingly think about these issues in a consistently liberal direction. And so the reason is that yeah. apart from all this just normal sort of psychological distancing of the issue and discounting, climate change, because it forces us to consider uh, immense structural changes to our economy, to thinking about the role of the government, potentially our lifestyle, definitely our lifestyle, it maps on to these underlying differences in worldviews we have about the role of the government versus the economy, individualism, you know, uh, emphasizing individualism over the welfare of the community. So climate change itself, uh, people read into its complexity a lot of their own hopes and desires and their beliefs about what is a good society. 
and those are the mm-hmm. and that yeah. then influences how technologies and policies are perceived in these political debates. Yeah, I mean, I think you've listed a number of reasons why this is such a challenging topic on which to communicate, and perhaps particularly in the in the sort of day and age in which we find ourselves now. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, perceived solutions that you have in the realm of climate communications, and one in particular that you and your co-authors, Melinda Weathers and Edward Maybach, you guys have written that climate change public engagement efforts have historically focused, exactly as you noted, on the environmental dimensions of the threat, but that messages focused on the public health impacts may have the potential to engage a wider range of people. Uh, Can you say a little bit more about that research that you've done with your colleagues and perhaps how you see those two sets of messages being different or complementary? You know, the the general concept of framing is that uh, with a complex issue like like climate change, there's multiple dimensions to it. And by emphasizing one dimension of the issue over others, you start to create a sometimes a slightly or or dramatically different storyline about the issue, why it matters, who is impacted or who is involved, who is responsible and and what should be done. So the, you know, the traditional story about climate change, the traditional frame of reference is still dominant frame of reference today is that climate change is a environmental and pollution problem. And if we act on climate change through a variety of policies, we will achieve significant environmental benefits. But what historically has been left out of that conversation and the focus on the environment and species and ecosystems are humans. And, you know, the the discourse around climate change over the last 10 years has definitely started to focus more and more on human impacts. But the environmental frame tends to uh, mobilize people already concerned about climate change. But once you start to talk about climate change, if you shift the frame of reference to an equally scientifically valid dimension of the problem, which is that climate change is a major public health threat, and that if we act on climate change, there will be many benefits to public health and public safety, you start to expand the scope of relevance of the issue to segments of the public who may, maybe have never really considered climate change personally relevant to them. They thought about it in terms of impacting Arctic regions, in terms of melting ice. They might have think about, think about it symbolically in terms of polar bears or other symbolic species, but they haven't really ever thought about it as something that's proximate to them, actually affecting their communities right now, people they care about, and having a human face on it. And so when we've done a series of studies, and there's other studies that have shown this, is that when you switch that frame of reference in carefully designed experiments that are embedded in nationally represented surveys, when people uh, read a statement like a short news article uh, about climate change where it's framed as a public health problem and the actions or a variety of mitigation and adaptation-related actions, off of them at the local level but also at the national level, And if we take those actions, they lead to a whole set of public health benefits like cleaner air and water, uh, more walkable communities, uh, protection against extreme uh, heat, protection against uh, extreme rainfall and and storms, that people who uh, might be ambivalent about the issue or disengaged in answering questions after reading that frame of reference, their levels of engagement and also their emotional reaction of hope, which is very important, hope that actually something can be done about the problem their positive emotional reaction increases. And positive emotion is very important because positive emotion is directly related to forms of civic engagement, whether or not people are willing to become involved or think that if they become involved, something uh, good is likely to happen, that they can actually make a difference. The one uh, trade-off with that research, and we see this 
you know, in a series of studies now on framing and climate change is that when you introduce a frame of reference like reframing climate change as a public health problem or as a national security problem and the benefits to public health or the benefits to national security if you act, if you put it in the context of a counter frame where such as an opponent to action might offer that the science is uncertain or any action is too costly, uh, the effectiveness of the public health or national security frame tends to go away. The, the research has been important, but I think less at like an individual persuasion level. I think where it's been important is sort of moving new societal sectors, uh, activating and engaging, for example, uh, people from the public health community, from the medical community, from the first responder and emergency preparedness communities to, to think about climate change over time, even such a, such a thing as like the Surgeon General's office under the Obama administration and the Centers for Disease Control was really important. You're just kind of widening the scope of kind of key elite sectors in society who are acting on climate change at the local, state, and uh, federal levels. So, Matt, that's that's really interesting. Uh, one thing that that made me think of is that, you know, here at Resources for the Future, uh, we are an environmental economics research organization. So we do focus on both environmental impacts, but also on economic impacts. And just listening to your comments on the public health messages and the environment messages, have you learned anything in your research about the economic messages as well? I haven't studied the specific economic messages, but I serve as editor of the journal Environmental Communication, and I just edited a three-volume series with Oxford called the Oxford Encyclopedia of Climate Change Communication, where we had about 115 contributors from 20 countries and 12 disciplines. And so I've been reviewing the literature pretty extensively, and I think with economic messages and considerations with the public, I think there's two dimensions to think about. One is the research and the polling that's been done on public opinion about carbon taxes. So in the United States right now, the good news is you can go to the Yale University climate maps and you can drill down to the congressional district level in terms of the polling data that they've collected over the last five years or so. And you can actually look district by district in terms of uh, whether or not people living in that district say that they support a carbon tax, a carbon tax on emissions from industry, I think it is what they focus on. And, and the good news is that a majority, it probably surprises many listeners, we tend to overlook this, but a majority of people living in every congressional district across the country, I think except for one in the Deep South, a majority say they support a form of a carbon tax. And we see that in other, other polling as well in the U.S., and we see that in other countries. The problem is, and there's a good uh, review article of this by a political scientist in Canada, the Oxford uh, series that I edited. The problem is, is once you start to pose questions to the public about support for a carbon tax in the context also of mentioning potentially the rise in cost in terms of energy bills, for example, uh, or the average household cost, much of the support for a carbon tax goes away. So again, you have this counter-messaging problem. Um, and I think this is what happened in the Washington State uh, ballot initiative fight, where it seemed early on in the polling that voters in Washington State were going to approve the recent ballot uh, initiative proposal for a carbon tax in the state. And then the fossil fuel industry, along with other opponents, spent a lot of money to counter-message. And once you counter-message around a carbon tax with talking about costs and also the fairness of the tax, who is the revenue going to, it becomes very difficult to maintain public support under those conditions. It's also the same reason why it's difficult to pass uh, gasoline tax updates in even states like Massachusetts. We had one here fail in 2014. 
So that problem of, of public opinion and support for carbon taxes going away in the context of making salient costs is, is representative of a bigger problem when it comes to economics in the public is that you know our lifestyles, particularly in the United States, are so embedded in a fossil fuel economy based on travel and consumption and a certain standard of life. As we move forward and we talk about some of the really tough choices we have in terms of policies, when we look state by state at what's going to happen to energy costs as we switch to renewables, uh, we're going to have to do a lot of dialogue and stakeholder engagement because what you're seeing in France right now in terms of the protests against a diesel tax, which is really symbolic of some underlying divisions within that country and unhappiness with the Macron uh, presidency, but it's also a sign of revolt against what they perceive as technocratic decisions that they didn't have a say in that are favoring elites and not favoring people living in rural areas or suburban areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And that's something that we think a lot about at RFF as we look at carbon pricing policies and the, the various ways you can use revenue, uh, because those revenue uses can be important contributors to alleviating some of those challenges for low-income households and, and other populations that are disproportionately affected by something like a tax. So that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to turn to another piece of your research portfolio for just a second. And you briefly mentioned earlier your work looking at uh, philanthropy. And so I wanted to dive into that topic just a little bit. Um, so why did you choose to look at the role of foundation funding in particular uh, just earlier this year in advancing energy and climate strategy and policy? And, and do you see a connection between that work and your broader interest in, in climate communications? Yeah, definitely. So studying public opinion and the role of media coverage and campaigning on, on voter decisions and broader public opinion, my, my assumption early on was that if federal policy was going to pass and the, the issue was going to be solved, that the main path would be to mobilize public opinion, that public opinion would really be the difference. I wrote a, an article in 2009 as, as uh, Barack Obama took office that uh, with the, the various cap-and-trade policies on the table and Obama trying to pursue a more aggressive climate agenda, you know, he would not be able to unless you know, there was a shift in the public opinion polls and elected members of Congress started to hear a lot more from uh, their constituents on the issue. But as I studied the failure of cap-and-trade and, trade and I, I started to look at where the polls were moving, you know, the, the good news about the public opinion poll, polling is that the public opinion debate has been won. You, you look at polls that they're, you know, from independents to moderate Republicans to Democrats, there's strong majority support for a broad suite of uh, renewable energy policies, tax credits, even as I mentioned earlier, carbon tax, acceptance that climate change is human caused and a problem. The public opinion is still not deep rooted and a top of mind issue for the public, but I don't think it ever will be simply because there's so many other competing issues and some of the other psychological distancing and discounting that we talked about earlier. So I started to look at it. I said, well, you know, a lot of the same dynamics that we know influence general public opinion such as framing, such as the role of narrative, such as the role of social identity, uh, the role that uh, news coverage, particularly elite news coverage plays, also influences how elites make decisions about climate change and how they view it as a social problem. Um, and so I started down uh, two tracks. The first track was to look at public intellectuals who were writing and arguing on behalf of climate change action, trying to break them into sort of different narrative camps 
these were you know sort of uh, intellectual traditions and narratives they were drawing on by which to talk about climate change as a social problem, what might be the so solution set. And they would write best-selling books, people like Bill McKibben or Tom Friedman or Naomi Klein. They would write best-selling books, and those books would come serve as sort of the informal sort of roadmaps that many people didn't have to directly communicate with each other, but because they had read those books and those books were part of a larger message stream, a larger narrative, they all tended to gravitate towards the same solution set or the same framing of the problem, the same type of arguments. And I thought that was really interesting to try to understand that. And then the second piece of that is behind the scenes, often sometimes funding these books, but particularly funding NGOs, were major philanthropies who had been working on climate change since the 1990s. And in the paper that I published this summer, I, I kind of trace the history of the Energy Foundation, which was launched by some of the biggest foundations in the country, like the Hewlett Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust back in the 1990s. And they were formed as a, as a re-granting organization where they would take these really big block grants uh, from these large foundations, and they would use their expertise to reinvest it and pool it around a shared set of strategies. And that can be very influential because by putting out a call for proposals, putting out web statements and problem framings, white papers, annual reports, and choosing to invest in some NGO activities over others, a re-granting organization the size of the Energy Foundation, along with direct granting that organizations like the Hewlett Foundation might be doing, the NGO community tends to then coalesce around that problem framing and solution set, uh, simply because in order to work on activities, they need the money, but also the foundations from the behind the scenes sort of set the agenda and set the framing of the problem. So the framing that was set by the Energy Foundation historically and long term was, was a highly technocratic one in thinking about science and economics as being the main drivers of finding solutions, and then uh, that climate change fundamentally was a market failure. Uh, and the best way to correct the problem, to solve a problem, was to correct for that market failure by passing a price on carbon, either through cap and trade or a carbon tax, that then would drive the adoption of renewable energy without considering other clean energy or low carbon energy technologies that we might need. So uh, what I looked at in this paper that came out of the summer was I looked at this network of 19 of the biggest, most influential sort of opinion-leading, agenda-setting foundations on climate change over the last 20 years, and I, I assembled a, a database drawing on their, their websites and their annual reports and their tax filings of every grant that they had, uh, that they had funded uh, between 2011 and 2015 looking at, one, what was their problem framing and how did they respond to critiques that emerged after the failure of cap-and-trade and the failure of Copenhagen uh, in 2010 and 2009. Critiques in terms of changing course, uh, in terms of making new investments. I went through all the different grant uh, descriptions and I coded each by its policy focus, its technology focus, its communication uh, focus. And the total amount of grants that were distributed between uh, 2011 and 2015 was about a little over 550 million uh, in grants. And what's interesting is that the major foundations did in part respond to critiques after cap and trade, but responded selectively mm -hmm. in that they uh, poured a lot more money into public mobilization than they had previously. So they 
out of the $556 million that they distributed, they put nearly 30% or $150 million into mobilizing the public on behalf of climate change, renewable energy, or against the fossil fuel industry, whether it's fracking or the fossil fuel industry generally. But consistent with their long-term strategy, they put one out of every $4 into renewable energy and less than 2% of all dollars into other low-carbon tech. Uh, this includes carbon mm -hmm. capture and storage or, for example, making natural gas more efficient and safer. And not a single grant was put into nuclear energy, either advanced nuclear or keeping nuclear energy plants open. The one major shift they did, the other major shift they did uh, do is that they, they did put a lot more money into resilience and adaptation. And they put a lot of money into making renewable energy and efficiency retrofits affordable and accessible to low-income communities, particularly in uh, large urban areas. So this is fascinating. I am wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what this means for the future of philanthropic efforts. And perhaps you can also reflect on some of the research you discussed earlier. Uh, if you can call out any tips you might have for the research community, rather broadly defined, uh, who might want to embark on better communications efforts related to climate change. So any lessons learned from either or both of these research efforts that you'd want to share with us? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing is that uh, the good news is that more than 20 foundations announced uh, earlier this year that they're going to put four to five billion into climate change and energy over the next five years, uh, not just in the United States, but in efforts uh, focused on other countries and at the international level. I think with uh, federal policy paralyzed, and it's likely to continue to be paralyzed for the next uh, you know, two years at least, and probably beyond that, people are going to look more and more to philanthropies along with state and local governments for solutions and the private sector. Uh, but I think the question for philanthropy is, uh, can they expand their solution set and also the variety of groups that, that they're investing in? So when I looked at the $560 million, which is more than 2,500 grants, more than half the money went to just 20 organizations. And so I think you know part of the problem is that there's only so many big organizations that are set up to immediately receive the money that the foundations have to process every year and, and give away, basically. Um, but I think there, there's a lot more diversity that's needed in terms of bringing new ideas and new NGO groups to uh, into the into the funding stream, and part of it's up to the NGO groups, but also as part of it's up to the the foundations to identify those groups and be willing to listen mm -hmm. to their new ideas. And the second part of that is also is that uh, you know just a, a much wider focus on innovation is needed, both in terms of the role of government, uh, but also the role of uh, whatever type of market pricing instruments, whether it's a even a clean a clean energy standard at the national level. Uh, so I think that's important. And then second on communication, you know, I think things are so polarized at the national level now um, that it becomes um, easy to, to fall into a, a kind of a binary thinking about good guys and bad guys and uh, enemies and allies. Uh, but we need to create spaces for critical self-reflection. The reason that we've tended to have a lot of groupthink and uh, sort of path dependency in the strategies we pursued on, on climate change and sort of narrow ideas about technology is that we've often closed off alternative ideas by immediately attacking them as not part of our tribe. And I think that's, that's really problematic. So I think uh, trying to really listen and have dialogue and to invest in the forums that are bringing people together from the center left, from the far left, and from the center right, 
to uh, develop human relationships with each other in the process of trading ideas in a way that uh, is uh, civil and open, and at the same time leaves open the capacity to disagree. We've sort of lost our ability to disagree with each other politically. We don't know what that mm -hmm. looks like anymore. And the only way we make good decisions, the social science literature on this is, is, is really clear. There's a professor at Stanford University that just has a book out now called In, in Defense of mm -hmm. Troublemakers. But in, across every context, from individual decisions to group decisions to business decisions, under conditions where we don't encounter ideas that are challenging and we don't engage with people who fundamentally disagree with us, we tend to make really bad decisions. And the, the conditions where we make good decisions is where we're encountering rival ideas. Even if those ideas mm -hmm. prove to be wrong, we make better decisions under conditions where we're in, engaging with different ideas. And the problem is that sort of our news media system and social media plays a huge role in this. Social media has been really destructive to the climate community, mm. in my opinion, that uh, we really need to try to get off of Twitter <laughs> and get off of Facebook and get off of start blogs. Start talking to each other and, again. Uh, yeah. Yeah, start talking to each other again. And also um, reward the, the really good journalism that's out there that's taking sort of a big idea look that's also a critique of expert knowledge, even if we, we might disagree with it. We need more Andrew Revkins and we need more uh, uh, Charles Manns and we need other some really good climate journalists out there who are, are broadening the scope of ideas that we encounter. So Matt, thank you so much for your time. I just, I do wanna wrap up with our sort of regular closing segment for the for the podcast, which we call Top of the Stack. And this is where we ask our guests uh, to tell our listeners something that you have read, are reading, you may have watched or heard recently related to the issues you just discussed that you think is really interesting and that you would recommend to the audience for the podcast. Well, I have the book right on my table here. I, I think everyone should read it. It's not directly related to climate change, but I think it it's so important in understanding the environment in which we live in today. It's called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy by Siva Vadhanathan, who is a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. And, you know, we only a few years ago, we were celebrating uh, Twitter and, and Facebook as leading to new avenues of discourse and ideas. But now, because these are such powerful, particularly Facebook, such a powerful uh, uh, platform by which we interact with almost everything uh, from news to uh, friends to colleagues, it's really, as we saw in the 2016 election, has opened the door to a lot of problems. And if anyone wants to really look at the history of this and have a really reflective, critical understanding of what social media is doing to us, even impairing our ability to think clearly, I would strongly recommend that book. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. I really appreciate it. And we'd love to have you back. Well, I'd, I'd love to join you again. I'm really looking forward to uh, following uh, your podcast series as it gets off the ground. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions 
through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.